Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidle, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is June 27th, 2021. And there's a lot to talk about. A lot of to- a lot of different topics. It's almost like a pandemic didn't happen. I know. Seriously. There were so many different topics of so many different types hosted by all sorts of faces today. So a lot to discuss. Yeah. The pandemic was referenced like it happened like last year. And it wasn't something that happened this year. Oh, not in one of my shows. And I'm going to talk about it. But mm. there was also the devastating infrastructure failure in south florida in surfside florida where they are still looking for survivors in that residential condominium building that just collapsed thursday night yeah horrifying horrifying Horrifying. so in terms of the ratings for the two shows you looked at today naomi well first of all what were they so i looked at face the nation and i looked at this week i think i would say for my ratings i'm gonna give face the nation a four John Dickerson, it was a pretty good show. I think there were a few things that kind of like rubbed me the wrong way and brings it down a little bit to a five, but nothing super egregious. For this week, I'm going to give it a three. John Carl was the host. He was kind of subbing in for Martha Raddatz and George Stephanopoulos. And he just makes some kind of value calls or decisions that I I don't like, so I'm going to talk about that, too. But it's still an okay episode. Yeah, still a fine. Okay. How about you? What'd you look at? So I looked at Meet the Press. I looked at Fox News Sunday, and I looked at State of the Union. Hmm. I think everyone's pretty high up there. Meet the Press was a little better than the other two. I think I'm going to say Meet the Press is a four. There was a really good discussion of what's going on in miami there was a good discussion of what's going on with the infrastructure bill so i think that was that was very well done of course chuck todd grew up in miami in the miami dade area so he feels very close to that story fox news sunday there was a focus this was kind of like a focused episode chris wallace wanted to have related to the increase in crime in america that we are seeing in various cities. So that's kind of unique for Fox News Sunday. They don't often have kind of like a theme like that, that they kind of pluck out of the headlines. I don't think people would say crime was one of the top stories this week in terms of politics. Infrastructure definitely was more at the forefront, but they decided to do it. So I give them kudos for that. I think overall, I would give that episode a three and okay. The content was pretty good, There were some questionable questions, and we'll get into that. State of the Union, I would give a three as well. It was an okay episode. There were moments that shined. And it was hosted by Jake Tapper today? Jake Tapper, yes. He had an extremely long interview with Mitt Romney. This is like the interviews he used to have with John McCain and other favorite Republicans. He's now got his new favorite Republican, perhaps, or maybe Mitt Romney is... Fill in a gap. Yeah. 
he's rehearsing for that role and uh yeah so it was, i don't know mitt romney has been performing the role of everyone's <sighs> favorite republican since forever yeah and here's the thing like <laughs> a lot of what they discussed was just all over the map you know that was fine i mean mitt romney certainly played a a very meaningful role in the negotiations that have led to the infrastructure deal. So that's relevant, but there were questions like he asked Mitt Romney about the unmanned aerial phenomena. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Mitt Romney <laughs> said something like, if it can't, I don't think it's Russia or China because they're not that far ahead of us. And if these things came from another system, an alien world, well, that would be fascinating, but I don't think it's a national security threat. I don't think he's seen Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just kind of funny hearing Mitt Romney talk about other systems. <laughs> but overall, Romney was very interesting to hear from. And unfortunately, we're not going to hear a lot from him in today's episode because it wasn't directly relevant to the top stories we are discussing. But as you said, Naomi, Romney really does serve that role of the adult in the room. There was a brief discussion of the way Republicans and conservatives in media have been targeting General Milley and the military overall for critical race theory and all the pushes from Republicans to outlaw the teaching of critical race theory from American schools. And Romney said something like, let's not censor what we allow to be taught in schools. That's what they do in China and Russia. He's always sounding like the adult in this Republican Party. And he did once again today. He's just like, come on, guys. No, no that's not. Come that's on. dumb. Let's, let's move not, on. Let's not do that. <laughs> uh, and then an extremely important point that was delivered by Jake Tapper at the closing of his episode. And it was where he talked about the insurrection on January 6th, and in particular, the denial, the big lie that Donald Trump is continuing to perpetuate. There were some interesting clips going around this last week, apparently, with President Trump reinstating his belief in the big lie, Mike Pence pushing back on it and calling it un-American to think that Mike Pence could have overturned the election, and former Attorney General William Barr calling the whole big lie bullshit. So Jake Tapper had a lot to say about that. I felt like it was a bit of a defense of his, I'm not going to have people on who believe and perpetuate the big lie. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was kind of a subtle way of saying that. There's always subtext in yeah. the decisions that they're making. So, so interesting. But I don't know. Maybe we'll give it a four. We'll give it a four. I'll be nice. I'll be generous. It's a good episode. Okay. It's a good episode. So let's dive right into it. Quality questionable. Brendan, I often go first. You go first today. That sounds great. So <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> yes, how you've suffered. <laughs> so quality questionable. So here's my quality. My quality is, as we mentioned earlier, Chuck Todd talking about what happened in Miami. And Chuck Todd did the best on this of the three shows that I covered. And he did it by having a reporter on the ground talking about what's going on there. And just to remind everyone, this is Surfside, a community outside of Miami, in Miami-Dade County, where a multi-story condominium slash apartment building in the middle of the night just collapsed. Or parts of it collapsed. There were still sections that were still standing for no apparent reason. 
This is a 40-year-old building. We learned on Friday from various news outlets that there were inspectors' reports from three years ago flagging really terrible cracks and just structural structural issues. issues that go back to the creation of this building in 1981 that were extremely, extremely concerning. So Chuck Todd spoke with a reporter on the ground. Then he spoke with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine Cava. And he had some excellent questioning, not just about what's going on on the ground, which is what often this type of interview is. It's like, oh, tell us the latest as the hurricane approaches. Tell us the latest about, you know, the rescue mission. But Chuck Todd was like, no, you're a person in charge and you have more responsibility than that. Take a listen. You know, this brought back a lot of memories for those of us that went through Hurricane Andrew down there in South Florida when sadly we found out that in the 70s and 80s, um, building inspections in the county were were pretty shoddy. This is what the Miami Herald back in 1992 Mm, uncovered. Shoddy building practices exposed, panels faulted, Dade's building inspections, a grand jury back then overhauled the building code, and, and many of the building codes were indeed overhauled. But this building was built in 1981. Um, are you going to, do you think you should order a review of any building, basically, that was built essentially in the 70s and 80s, pre-Hurricane Andrew, and have them all reinspected with a fine-tooth comb? We have a, a very strong building code, as you know, and based on Hurricane Andrew, as you say, we learned so much from that, and buildings subsequent have been built to a very high standard. Uh, For sure, uh, when we get this uh, information, we may look at what else we might do. Uh, At this point, we're starting with the review of those 40 plus. And, um, you know, look, uh, this, as far as we know and hope, is an anomaly, but the investigation is going to be ongoing. Right now, we're still very focused on search and rescue. I understand that, but we've seen the initial initial release of... of, um, uh, uh, papers about and the inspections of this building and clearly some flaws were identified three years ago Uh, look obviously hindsight makes that all look very haunting when we're reading about it today but does that give you a lot of concern that maybe there's quite a few buildings that maybe you don't know about and and why would you at this point because it's going through the process that has to give you more concern that that there be more troubled buildings in the area So I've been speaking to my fellow mayors of cities and we are talking about what we will do in the municipalities as well as Miami-Dade County. And I can assure you that we'll be taking a very aggressive look at everything. So you hear the mayor try to pivot and say, we're focused on search and rescue. And Chuck Todd's like, that's not good enough. I heard this mayor on Face the Nation and I thought John Dickerson actually had really strong questions for her as well. I heard the focus of it being purely search and rescue from multiple people from South Florida today. So I don't think it's just her pivoting. Yeah. To, you know, that that is the official stance of the of the rescue efforts. Speaking of good questions, Dickerson, and it's not my quote, but Dickerson did ask her a really fascinating question about what is it like to lead in a moment like this? Mm-hmm. And it was really yeah. interesting saying, like, even though she hasn't been mayor long She's using like the full scope of her life experience to be able to be what her people, her constituents need. It was it was a really interesting question. But yeah, 
kudos definitely to Chuck Todd for comparing this to another moment in South Florida history where structural integrity was lacking. Yeah, absolutely. And in the panel, when they were talking about this, he reinforced how important it is to pay attention to what local officials are doing in your region. This is a reminder, folks, your local officials worry about who you're voting in. We had terrible local officials in the 70s and 80s that allowed all of this shoddy stuff to happen down there. And to see it now, when this bill I saw in 1981, it was just one of those you just got you, sort of knew you just got angry all over again. We, we don't know the answer yet, but Occam's razor does. Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest answer is usually, the, right the simplest explanation is usually the right one. It truly is so outrageous. Yeah. Naomi, what was your quality or questionable today? So I had a quality moment also about Surfside and from Face the Nation. These news stories that are out of nowhere, devastating to hear, like they can be powerful in their own right. But what I find particularly moving is when a journalist can anchor a huge news story into a bigger life lesson or reflection or prompt more broadly. And that's what John Dickerson did here. Every Sunday when I walk to this studio, I pass a firehouse. It is quiet that early in the morning. The firemen and women pass the time in easy conversation or preparing their equipment. It is nearly as peaceful as it was in the middle of the night Thursday at Champlain Tower South, just before the building collapsed. That nightmare coming at the hour where we risk feeling safest, asleep in our beds, summon police, emergency medical technicians, and firemen like the ones I pass on the way to work each Sunday. In an instant, that community of protection rushed to endanger their lives in the hope of saving the lives of others. Their heroism in falling rubble and live electrical wires gives hope in dark moments to the families and to the rest of us, staggered by what we see. It is all too big, and the anguish and the loss. But because even when the sirens are not blaring, those men and women are still dedicated every day to life's preciousness, to rescuing people they don't know simply because they are human. The rest of us may never face an acute moment of danger where we can be a hero, But we are all surrounded by humans every day to whom we can be generous, compassionate, and true. In these tragic moments, we feel our common human connection. We can honor those feelings by being like the first responders who recognize that human connection even after the tragedy passes. Wow. Isn't that like so gutting? It's very powerful. Yeah, I it stayed with me for a really long time because... You might not have any connection to Florida. You might not know any police officers or firemen, firewomen, rescue workers of any kind. But you might not have a tragedy that you're kind of responding to. But like, what would it be like if all of us were a little bit more compassionate in our community to our neighbors, to the people around us, just because they deserve it? And the sense of just leaping into action. Right. Into compassion. Leaping into compassion. Yeah, totally. It's just so crazy. This is such a different closing from Jake Tapper's closing. (laughs) It's also a very different different closing to anything Margaret Brennan would do as well. Oh, yes. Absolutely. 
I mean, <laughs> Brendan, I was just briefly mentioning how Dickerson had like this really great closing. And you were saying if he was head of some like local Unitarian church, like we'd attend that church probably. Yeah, this sounds like a little sermon. <laughs> Isn't you know? it lovely? It's so lovely. He did. He'd do a great job. That'd be great. So, Brendan, start us off today. What are you talking about first? So, yeah, I want to talk about infrastructure, and that is in my politics section, something worth discussing in politics. And the big story is that there is an infrastructure deal between the White House and Senate Republicans. This was not the initial group of Republicans that was negotiating with the White House. This is that kind of bipartisan group both Republicans and Democrats, who went to the White House and said, look, we have the votes to hopefully push this thing through. And indeed, they reached an agreement with the White House. It was announced on Thursday of last week. And then there was a bunch of, well, Joe Biden kind of put his foot in his mouth, probably for the first time since he's been president, really, by saying that he would essentially, it seemed like, veto this infrastructure bill, this plan, if at the same time he didn't see a second plan with all of the Democrats' wish list also on his desk at the same time. This meant that a lot of the Republicans who had originally signed on said, whoa, whoa, we're not, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And Joe Biden had to walk it back and release a big, long, written statement on Saturday saying, no, these are JK, really JK, liked. everyone. Yeah, just kidding. That brings us to these Sunday episodes where everybody, all the hosts, wanted to talk about Joe Biden putting his foot in his mouth and the White House. And the walk back. Yeah, and the walk back. Absolutely. They'd love to cover that. But of course, they were also covering somewhat the historic nature of this deal. On the Sunday shows, representing the White House was Cedric Richmond. He is a senior presidential advisor. And boy, did he do a bad job. I put in my notes here at this moment in the episode of State of the Union, I wrote, wow, in all caps, this is bad. Take a listen to how Cedric Richmond answers what seems like should be a very simple question, especially at this point. Now, um, Mr. Richmond, thanks so much for joining us. So on Thursday, President Biden explicitly said he would not sign the bipartisan infrastructure bill into law unless it is paired with the Democrats' sweeping budget reconciliation package. Now, on Saturday, he said it wasn't his intention to say that. He still wants to see the two bills passed, but he is no longer refusing to sign the infrastructure deal if it lands on his desk on its own. Do I have that right? Well, the president yesterday, his words speak for uh, speak for themselves. But I think the real point, uh, Jake, is that he was putting the focus back on the historic nature of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So whether it's the lead pipes, the electric uh, vehicle charging stations, electric buses, I think he wants to make sure that people understand how historic this is. So this type of investment, this size of investment has never been done in this country's history. So I'll just close this part with this, uh, Jake. People in this country want government to work. Where Democrats and Republicans agree, hurry up and do that. Where you fight, fight. But what you can accomplish, please go do it. And so that's what this jobs bill and infrastructure bill does. We agree on that. So we're going to do it. We're going to pass it. We're going to fight on the American Families Plan. We're going to win. 
We're going to help American families and the human infrastructure also. And ultimately, the president is going to sign two bills. Wow. The president's words speak for themselves. I, what did he say? I speak for the president, but I don't put words in his mouth. And where he has a clear statement, I let that do the speaking. <laughs> Sounds like you're not speaking very well. <laughs> what? In talking about how Biden speaks. What the hell? Why don't you just reiterate what was in the damn statement on Saturday? Why don't you just say that? If you're saying that speaks for itself, then just put it in front of you, pull it up on your phone, and read it. Read the relevant places if you refuse to say anything else. Wow. Yeah. As I said, wow, this is bad. This is very bad. It's a yes or no question. And he's like, oh, it's not a yes or no question. Of course it is. If it's on his desk, is he going to sign it or not? He either does or he doesn't. Unless he's going to, what is he going to do? He's going to pocket veto it? Well, Richmond was on one of the shows that I looked at, and he wasn't nearly this bad. So maybe he got tripped up and on State of the Union specifically. I don't know. Those clips are not great. I was flabbergasted. Luckily, some of the Republicans who supported the bill were actually on the Sunday shows to speak a little more positively and clearly about what the bill is actually going to achieve. Here is Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, one of the Republicans who reached the agreement with President Biden. What's your case to some skeptical Republicans who, on one hand, I think want to go home and say, hey, uh, I did get some work done. I was able to secure funding for this bridge over here uh, or this restoration project over there. Um, but somehow the political chattering class tells them, hey, you're going to give Joe Biden a win, right? Because you're supporting a bill he supports. And I know we're so politically cynical in this town, but sadly, there's quite a few senators that, that stick their finger in the wind with the political base and make a decision on it. How do you how do you walk that line? What's your message to those Republican senators? Uh, if you go home and talk to constituents who are stuck in traffic for an hour and a half getting to work and an hour and a half getting home, three hours a day that they don't spend with their family, um, they want these. They want a bridge coming to a town near them. My wife says that roads and bridges are a, a woman's problem, if you will, because oftentimes it is the woman, aside from commuting to work, who's also taking children to school or doing the shopping. And the more time she spends on that road, the less time she spends doing things of higher value. So if you speak to her, she's going to say, this is a good bill. Lastly, I will say, if you speak to communities which have flooded, which have been endangered, you just spoke about hurricanes striking Miami. My coastline is right. in Louisiana has been melting away. If you speak to those communities, they really like the resiliency piece. If you put your finger up in the air, you're going to feel a breeze blowing in favor of this bill. That breeze is called sexism. <laughs> Truly, infrastructure... Making infrastructure a feminist cause. Wow. Did not see that one coming on this Sunday. <laughs> you know, the women, are, they, the women are, take the children. What is this man stands on abortion and reproductive choice? If he, <laughs> I want to know. If there any, what's his name again? Bill is, Cassidy. He is a senator from the state wait, of Louisiana. Wait, is he Cassidy a doctor? Is he yes. one of the doctors? Oh. Yeah, I remember. I, I like the minute I said abortion, and then I like put together Cassidy comments I've heard before. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is so ridiculous. So your problem is 
multiple things. But first and foremost, take your own damn kids to school and don't just make your wife take them to school or wherever supposedly she has to do it. Women are not going to fall for this. I will tell you that. Yeah. But at least he's talking about the positive effects of the right, bill. Right, yes? right. I know, I know. I just don't effects. like the way he's celebrating it. Now, I do want to point out that, and this is something that we should probably update, that the Sunday show should update, the political class should update in their conventional wisdom. Probably never will. But it is the fact that if you build more lanes of a highway, you actually don't reduce traffic yes. congestion. You increase traffic congestion. Anybody who more people go on mobility knows this. Yes. Yes. More so, lanes equals more traffic. Yes. It doesn't reduce traffic. <laughs> Seems like it would reduce it. But more people are like, oh, look, they just opened the new part of the highway. I'm getting on there. And it just fills right up. Now, if you're building a bridge across a river where before people had to drive all the way around, yes, you will reduce commuting times. Right. We're going to get so many hate mail or hate tweet about being being anti more highway. L- listen, we live in Southern, Califor- Southern California. We're around highways all the time, and they're all full. Yes. So more highways does not equal less traffic. Yes. And shorter commutes. No, it does not. Negative. So Republican Senator Cassidy was on saying he still supports the bill. Republican Senator Romney was on saying he still supports the bill. And... As we heard earlier, a representative of the Biden administration was on saying Biden will or will not sign the bill if it does or does not reach his desk at some point with or without the second bill. So everything seemed good, generally, that this bill was going to happen. But there was some meaningful discussion on the panel about the chances of that actually happening. And this is where I think the political panels and the shows that have chosen to retain or bring back their political panels has a bit of an advantage over shows that have decided to only have interviews with guests because they get into some of that analysis when the guests all seem to be pointing in the same direction. Here is Andrea Mitchell putting a little bit of cold water on the idea that the bill will actually be passed. So... People want infrastructure, but I never in my experience have seen two bills so different moving in tandem, which Pelosi and Schumer have said is their bottom line. And, you know, you heard Nancy Pelosi say it ain't going to happen without it, using that word ain't. And that, of course, precipitated the president misspeaking so badly that he had to release this long statement of apology. I've never seen anything like that, but for both of these to work through and they have to wait and they can't move quickly because in August they're going to be writing the language. So she goes on a little bit more about this saying, look, you know, underscoring this point that it usually you get to an agreement and you're like, let's all sign this thing and we're done. But the thing doesn't exist yet. They have to write it first. And there's all these recesses because people in Congress don't need to work in the summer. Gets too hot in Washington. Whatever, whatever. So there's a lot of opportunity for things to break down. Yeah, this is an interesting way to put it. I heard it on this week, and I can't remember who said it. it I think it was one of the Republicans, but, but 
they were expressing some skepticism on the possibility of having two bills so closely in tandem because they were just fundamentally at different stages of development. One was much further along. So are you going to wait to vote on that one to let another one that is much more kind of in the early infancy period essentially flesh out when they're still kind of precarious support for a larger caring infrastructure bill? Yeah. uh, Similarly, on Fox News Sunday, Jonathan Swan was on the panel there of Axios, the reporter for Axios. And he said that this would be like Joe Biden would be like LBJ times 10 to be able to get all this to happen the way that they are projecting and saying they want it to happen. It's going to be an insane amount of work. But We'll see. We'll see what happens. Naomi, I think you had more to say about this topic in your journalism segment. Yeah, I wanted to make a comment about the tone in which this conversation happens. Specifically on this week when John Carl talked to Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Now, I will preface this all by saying that I am not of the camp that like journalists shouldn't vote or they never have an opinion, or whatever, right? Like, I think that's all so stupid. Like, journalists live in communities, and they deserve to vote on issues that are matter to them. Even on issues they cover, they have a personal stake in stake those communities. In, yeah. in, in how they live and where they live, and they deserve to vote on it, right? And so, and I don't think it always detracts from their ability to do their job, to ask important pressing questions to political stakeholders, right? So... That being said, if you're a Democratic journalist, if you're a Republican journalist, I still think you can ask anybody hard questions. Like, that is literally why I love journalism. That being said, there's so many times where I get so frustrated when it's the way a journalist is framing a question or framing a conversation more broadly that it's so clear that they have an opinion on what they think should happen or what is appropriate and they're completely dismissing, disrespecting other people's hard work, hard lobbying, hard advocacy on that given issue. And it's really unfortunate. And so we heard that type of inappropriate tone when Jonathan Carl was talking to Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin, specifically the parallel bill that Senator Bernie Sanders is working on, the reconciliation bill, seemed, I don't know, just hear Jonathan Carl's tone. It sounds like he thinks it's ludicrous. So you know what Bernie Sanders is working on. He's talking about a bill that's $6 trillion. Uh, I, I know that you've suggested that's a little rich for, for in terms of what, what you want. But what is, what is your bottom line? How much more do you want? As you just said at the top of this, The bill that you're negotiating with Republicans would be the biggest infrastructure bill in the history of the United States. How much more are you willing to add on top of that? Well, when you look at it, John, we paid for all this. This is not going to be added to debt. The infrastructure bill that we've done in a bipartisan way has pay for us. We've used money that we've had. We've moved money that we had not used yet to make sure that it was used in the most productive way. I think we've all done a good job. And that's what we have to look for. And when we do the next, the next piece of legislation, I understand the concerns, I understand the desires of everybody in my caucus and also on the Republican caucus. I know we can work together. Just wh- why is that necessary to say six trillion like that? Like being so trolly about it? Yeah. And then saying 
there, this would be the biggest infrastructure bill in, in the history of the United States. First of all, we don't work on infrastructure nearly enough. Yes. So that is not a big accomplishment. Yeah. And Good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so then to say how much more are you willing to add on that? Gee, yeah. There might be people who have a lot bigger expectations. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like if, if this country ever passes something on immigration, it'd be like, this is the biggest immigration bill we've ever done. <gasps> That's because you failed the last 25 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like... The biggest in the whole decade. Well, and if, you, yourself. and if you listen to people, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman from New York, was on, was on Meet the Press, and the point she makes again and again, as you'll hear Bernie Sanders make, likely, is that Yes, this is the cost of the bill when you pass it, but it's over the course of six years, eight years, ten years. It's the idea that it's just one expenditure or outlay. No, it's it's a it's a commitment it's over a commitment. the next five to ten years on improved infrastructure. Right, right, right. It's like someone wants to buy a house and they're like, how could you afford a house right now? You don't have all that money. It's like, well, there's something called a mortgage and you pay it over time. <laughs> Yeah, it just, it really, really bothers me. Like, clearly Jonathan Carl thinks this negotiated bill is enough, but other people don't. And respect that work and just do your job. Well, and you hear it, you see it also as the way that he's framing it as if, oh, Bernie Sanders is writing it. This is Bernie Sanders who wants this. The president, Joe Biden, I mean, laid he does out mention, he does mention that the bill. Right, yeah. Like, like so, the need for it. Right, right, right. And the thing is, is that Jonathan Carl, this isn't like one moment that I just caught that drove me crazy. He continues with this line of questioning. Take a listen to this follow up again with Joe Manchin. So many good things, John. We can do. We can work this out. But, but, but what's your bottom line? The question is, this is over a trillion dollars. The bottom line. Bernie Sanders wants six yeah. more trillion. Here's what, the, what, 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 what are you, how far are you yeah. willing to go? Well, let me just say this, John. Right now, I never thought that the, the net corporate tax should have been 21%. I always felt 25 was very fair and balanced. So I'm willing to go to 25. I think that basically capital gains should be at 28%, not at 21. There's changes that we can make that still keeps us competitive. I'm not going to be supportive in voting for things that does not make, make us competitive. We're in a global economy. I want to make sure that we're the leader of the free world that we can still compete, that we can still manufacture, create great jobs, and pay good salaries with benefits. That's what I want to make sure happens. Joe Manchin just, he never answers the question. Like, what, what, the what is that? Does, that has is that, to do with nothing. Yes. Literally nothing. Well, listen, John, I, I never wanted the... What are you talking about? <laughs> Did you hear the question? Yeah. So I just, it, it really drives me crazy. and And I think... This can happen on so many issues, on, on any issue, really. And so many times it's easy. It's so easy to underestimate the impact of journalists kind of making those types of decisions because it's not there's not any clear like so and so did this type of coverage and it led to why. But there is an impact in our national understanding of an issue. And it got me thinking of the Me Too movement and how it brought down so many shitty men in media. And like these are men that covered politics, covered women in politics for decades, literally talking about what a good, like what leadership in a woman looks like and whether or not someone was 
you know, complaining about their voice or, you know, how intense they were or whatever other type of like BS comments they made. And you get to 2017 and they're all gross. They're all disgusting. <laughs> Not all of them. Lots of them are all disgusting people who harass their coworkers, who assaulted sometimes their coworkers. And like, it makes you think back like, oh, what did I read about them when they were talking about women in politics? What was I reading about them? Or what kind of comments were they making when they were talking about women's health care or abortion or reproductive rights? Like Mark Halpern literally on AB was on ABC for decades. Yes. Making commentary about politics. And he was one of them. I mean, and I'm like picking on ABC, but there was people at NPR, there were people at the New York Times, there's people everywhere, right? And so it really drives me crazy when a journalist is making is framing a story in a particular way. And unless you're like ears are on fire and you catch it, you just kind of absorb it. And you just kind of like take it like, oh, that that's how that story is framed. And you don't have to. And you can call it out and you can show your friends and you can say it's trash and let them know. And that's what this is to me. So I, I do see the where a little bit where you're connecting those two topics. No, you don't. So I think. <laughs> no, I do. I do. I see what you're saying. It took me a while to get there and understand where you were going with it. But I see what you're saying in terms of the framing and how framing these it's, topics. Right. And like. <laughs> I don't know what people think. I mean, people probably may have estimations on all my politics, your politics, Brendan. But like, I am not the most progressive person in all of like my friend circle. Definitely not the most progressive here in California. And like, I find it insulting to frame the hard work of people who are working on this issue in such a demeaning tone. And that's the part that drives me crazy. I'm not like making this claim because like, I think Bernie Sanders should have his whole bill or like I like I think he's going to get it or he needs to get it or whatever. It's just like there are people who find this issue very legitimate and are working very, very hard at it. And the way John Carl is talking about it is extremely insulting. I can totally see how that would be demeaning and frame the way the audience is understanding the issue. I want to think about this also from a journalistic perspective, right? So you're assuming that John Carl has a certain perspective, and you could very well be right on that. But removing Jonathan Carl's personal feelings about the Bernie Sanders bill from this issue, let's think about, like, journalistically, what is the value of asking Joe Manchin about this topic in that manner? What it seems like to me is knowing nothing about, let's assume we know nothing about John Carl's politics. It seems to me that John Carl knows that Joe Manchin is the moderate. We think of him as the moderate, right? Mm -hmm. Joe Manchin is no Bernie Sanders. And so John Carl goes up to him and says, hey, Bernie Sanders, he's doing all this crazy stuff out there. Trillions of dollars. Are you going to support that? Right? He's kind of like amping Joe Manchin up. Right. Like, he's like setting him up to be, to give like a Joe Manchin answer, right? He's setting him up and saying, hey, you, aren't you going to be like more Joe Manchin-y about this and say, look, I'm a moderate. I don't believe right. in that stuff. And that way of like going about it, being chummy and, and making it seem like you as the reporter are agreeing with his framing and asking him if he's going to be himself on this issue. He is encouraging Joe Manchin to be combative against exactly. Bernie Sanders by being like Who's in his own caucus. Right. 
An alternative way to do this, and a way that I think Chris Wallace approaches almost all of his interviews, is to say, you know what? It's not actually that interesting for me to try to set it up for Joe Manchin to be more Joe Manchin-y. Instead, how about I set it up to challenge Joe Manchin in his position, to challenge him with the alternative view so that my audience can see him dealing with those other arguments and facts right Right. there. And so like, and you're mentioning Chris Wallace, like he's the one who'll say, and specifically to Bill Cassidy, I remember a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. saying, you know, the child poverty rate in your state is blank percent. Do you think they don't deserve, I don't know if it was the child tax credit or or something, right. right? Like, wouldn't they benefit from it? And Cassidy has to say, I think, no, I think they're getting something else that could be helpful, right? Right, Or right, or, right. I'm paraphrasing, but making the case for what their claims, the implications of their claims right, would be. Challenging these people in political power. That's what we should expect from our journalists is to challenge them. And this line of questioning, the way of questioning that John Carl employs here is not challenging Joe Manchin. In any way. It's encouraging Joe Manchin to be more Joe Manchin. Right. In in what way? And and we know already that. And that conversation, like, in what world would Joe Manchin then, like, change his mind or reflect or think about, like, way of, like, negotiating with, you know, the Sanders camp more, whatever. Like, there's none of that. Hey, hey, you're the moderate guy. So let me ask you, um, are you going to be moderate on this? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (gasps) Shocking. (laughs) How about instead, hey, you represent a state that might benefit from some of the things that are being talked about in this other area. Do you not believe that that is something that would benefit members of your state? Right. Or I should say citizens and residents? Yeah. So I I was, there was one clip or one quote from Yvette Simpson on the panel where she's essentially talking about that progressives deserve to fight for progressive causes and they're not going to go down They're not just going to give up. And I was just kind of really impressed by it because I was like, wow, this is this whole show has been assuming the moderate take is enough and we should be grateful for it. And everyone else should just shut up. And it's the biggest infrastructure bill ever in in history. And so I just thought like, wow, that's a really hard stance to have. And it's a really hard voice to have when you're surrounded by people who don't want to hear you. So kudos to Yvette Simpson for being that voice. And kudos to anybody who's in a space where people like don't even acknowledge. Or laugh you out of the room. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard work. Brendan, what's your something in journalism? So it's actually very relevant to the discussion we just had here because it's about Chris Wallace and some of the tough questions that he had for people on both sides of the aisle as it related to crime. Now, obviously, Chris Wallace wasn't perfect. I'm definitely going to call him out for a few things here. But I wanted to look at the way he covered this topic because it's rather unique for Fox News Sunday to decide that their show is going to be shaped around one single topic. And today it was about crime. So take a listen to this exchange with, once again, Biden senior advisor Cedric Richmond. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to play basically the first question that he asks Cedric Richmond, which is, why do you think there's all this crime out there? Why does President Biden think the number of homicides and shootings is up so dramatically in the last 18 months? Well, part of it is the 
plethora of guns that are flooding the streets of this country. And that's something that the president wants to deal with. He knows the he knows the toll that violence takes on families and especially gun violence and what it's doing over the last 18 months uh, in this country. So I heard that answer and I thought, wow, that's a remarkably simple way to answer that question. And Chris Wallace, he felt the same. Here's his follow up. But but Mr. Richmond, I mean, the, the gun problem has been a problem for decades. It's, th that didn't get dramatically worse over the last 18 months, even as the number of homicides and shootings did. I, let, you talk about the police. Let's look at some numbers on the police. The New York Police Department saw a 53 percent increase in resignations and retirements last year. The 50 biggest U.S. cities reduced their 2021 police budgets by 5%, New York City by 15%. Uh, the president may not support defunding the police, but a lot of these cities are defunding the police. Well, Chris, I don't think that you can just make that uh, analysis or draw that conclusion. We were also in the midst of a pandemic where cities were cutting their budgets overall because uh, their cash flow was down. So I really appreciated Chris Wallace's follow-up just pointing out that guns have been a problem for a long time and there doesn't seem to be a very clear explanation as to why there has been increased crime, particularly violent crime. Later in the episode, Chris Wallace speaks with Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas, who's also a Democrat, and asks the same question and gets a much more nuanced and satisfying answer. Joining us now, someone who has to deal with the violence in our streets every day, Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas. Uh, Mayor, we've just heard the view from Washington, both from the White House and from Capitol Hill. You're on the front line. So let me ask you the same question I asked our prior two guests. Why do you think there has been this alarming spike in homicides and shootings in big cities across the country over the last 18 months? You know, I think there are a few different sources, but one of them very clearly was a lot of the efforts we had on prevention and intervention we were unable to do during the year of COVID. We had so many youth programs. We had opportunities for people to actually, who are coming back from prison, to get involved in jobs, all types of other things. And those really went downhill during the pandemic because we could not be together. I also have to agree with Cedric Richmond. The preponderance of firearms on our streets creates a significant problem. Each every day. We have young people getting guns in Kansas City, young people getting killed. Those are very significant issues for us. So I felt that was a really thoughtful answer. And it's something that I guess I haven't been following the story very closely. Maybe it's very obvious, but I haven't seen it noted before. I didn't hear it quite so specifically, but Keith Ellison was on, I'm almost positive it was Keith Ellison, was on this week and he was talking about the Derek Chauvin trial, but he mentioned as well that the pandemic has increased the economic crisis in so many neighborhoods and that that in turn, in some places, in, is an increase in crime and that it's more, if, if we have to address crime this year, it's because we also have been slow or we are still addressing the economic crisis and they go hand in hand. But I do like that it's kind of more specific on what what those programs, the violence prevention, the violence programs. prevention programs would be doing otherwise that they haven't been. Yeah, it's very effective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that there weren't people at all last year 
so at least on the Sunday shows, raising their hands and saying, hey, we probably shouldn't be shutting down these violence prevention programs. We should be working hard to make sure they're still functioning. Well, yes, but even in prisons, COVID care for COVID patients has been a joke. Yeah. So not surprised. Now, Chris Wallace, his clear answers and follow-ups there were definitely very much appreciated. And there was a moment where Chris Wallace did exactly what we were talking about in the last segment, Naomi, and actually challenged his position rather than reinforcing his position. Take a listen to this exchange. This is with Representative Jim Banks, a Republican from Indiana. He's the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. In the program that he announced this week, uh, the president said that the central part of his anti-crime package is the $350 billion in the American Rescue Plan, the COVID relief plan that was passed. Take a look at what the president said. It means more police officers, more nurses, more counselors, more social workers, more community violence interrupters to help resolve issues before they escalate into crimes. Congressman Banks, you voted against that package, against that $350 billion, just like every other Republican in the House and Senate. So can't you make the argument that it's you and the Republicans who are defunding the police? Uh, not at all, Chris. I mean, let's go back again and look at the last year and the record of comments that Democrats have made from Rashida Tlaib, who said that policing well, no, no, is wait, inherently sir, respectfully, evil. Wait, wait, sir. Respectfully, I, I, I heard you make that point, but I'm asking you, there's $350 billion in this package the president says can be used for policing. And I, let me put up some of the specific Chris, the things point, he the said. Point that I make, the Chris, the point that I'm making is important. Congressman Banks, let me, let me finish, and then I, I promise I'll give you a chance to answer. The president is saying cities and states can use this money to hire more police officers, invest in new technologies, and develop summer job training and recreation programs for young people. Respectfully, you, I, I've heard your point about the last year, but you and every other Republican voted against this $350 billion. When Representative Omar says that policing is rooted in evil and Nancy Pelosi compares police officers to Nazi stormtroopers, it makes it very difficult for police departments around the country to recruit people to become police officers. And that's the crisis that we find in police departments all over America. You can give them more funding and that's good. But if they can't recruit people to become a police officer because we've stigmatized one of the most honorable professions in America, then we're at a dangerous point. And that is that is directly related to the rise in violence crime across America. So this is a fascinating political exchange. But look, Chris Wallace didn't say, oh, those Democrats, they have said some really negative things about police over the last year. Do you really agree that with Joe Biden, that policing should have a component outside of traditional law enforcement and focus on prevention as well? Right? Like that would have been the John Carl way of questioning, right? Absolutely. But instead, Chris Wallace says, hold on, <laughs> you're saying that you're that you're against defunding police. And yet the Democrats all voted to fund three hundred and fifty billion dollars that could go towards policing. And you all voted against it. It wasn't it you who are defunding police. <laughs> but that's not to say that Chris Wallace did everything right. Take a listen to this question to Cedric Richmond. Once again, the president's senior advisor on the topic of 
policing. But I think the point that Senator Graham and some Republicans make beyond just the question of funding is that there has been an attack on the police as if they're part of the problem, especially from some Democrats. I also want to talk about the decline in prosecutions. And I've got some numbers here. According to one study, more than 90 percent of the charges against people protesting and rioting after George Floyd's murder were dropped in most cities. In New York, the ban on cash bail has resulted in the majority of people who are arrested getting released. Doesn't that send exactly the wrong signal both to police and to the criminals who are being arrested? Chris, look, the prosecutions that state uh, prosecutors make in their charging decisions has to be analyzed by the people who live in those uh, communities. And so I will hold my local DA accountable, and I think that everybody uh, should. But we have to remember here that it is about being smart on crime. And those people who uh, are peacefully protesting should not be prosecuted. Those that are rioting and and looting, uh, which the president has said from the beginning of the uh, campaign, that they should be held accountable. But that's not causing a spike in murders, homicides, gun violence. That's guns uh, causing uh, that increase. So let's try to keep it at least uh, targeted in terms of what what we're talking about here. So I wanted to flag this use of the word attack by Chris Wallace. It comes a little earlier in his question. But just to reiterate what Chris Wallace says here is that The point some Republicans are making is, quote, that there has been an attack on the police as if they are part of the problem, especially from some Democrats, end quote. To say, and and this is the second time, by the way, twice Chris Wallace uses the phrase attacking police. This is an attack on police. But people are simply criticizing police, right? We're talking about politicians and critics who are using words rhetoric and we have to reduce our own rhetoric especially since in reality there are such things as actual attacks there are criminal attacks there are terrorist attacks criticizing a police officer who violates protocol is not attacking police and i think that republicans and conservatives who have spent years complaining about things like trigger warnings and other things like that should recognize that a little bit of criticism is not an actual attack It is just criticism. We do a lot of criticism here at Polylog. We know what criticism is. We criticize people and hosts. All these hosts we have great affection for, but we criticize them all the time. Our criticism is not an attack. It is not an attack. I'm sick of this word attack. Stop using it. Unless there truly is an actual attack. Sometimes there are attacks. Right, there wasn't there somewhere in Texas that some guy was going after police officers but that has that been, is a real attack right that's a real attack that should have national news the criticism and analysis of police budgets is just good advocacy not good in that like it's worth it but it's it's advocacy you should do on any issue that's important to you exactly and i do i do want to point out here as well this just drives me crazy chris wallace in this question says in new york the ban on cash bail has resulted in the majority of people who are arrested getting released, end quote. Or no, and then he goes on to say, doesn't that send the wrong signal to both the police and to criminals who are being arrested, end quote. 
people okay listen <laughs> people are not criminals when they are arrested people are criminals after they have been convicted, convicted. of a crime people are arrested and then there is a system called bail and bail is where people who have been deemed like not a flight risk and not a risk of violence can actually go home until a jury of their peers or a judge convicts them of the crime that they are accused of. Being accused of a crime is not the same thing as actually having been committed the crime. That's why we have such a thing as juries. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but there are a series of shows out there. There are all sorts of programs like, out there where you can watch people doing things in a courtroom. That is called the criminal justice system, <laughs> right? Like, but like don't they, act like that but, doesn't exist. But the other thing is that the other reason this is complete trash is because, like, the bail system is so racist. Yes, absolutely. So racist and so classist that people who are poor stay in jail and end up settling, not because they're necessarily guilty, but because they're stuck there. And people who are rich or people who have money right. post bail and then go back home and, you know, have like are able to hire some lawyers to then kind of fight this and they're home the whole time the bail system is garbage yeah it's a get out of jail free card totally if, if you have money if you have money it's exactly that it is exactly that and so getting rid of cash bail means that everyone has the opportunity ideally everyone has the opportunity to be at home if they are not deemed a risk while they wait to go on trial which oftentimes the trials take a really long time to happen. So a lot of people are sitting in prison and we, the taxpayers, are paying for them to be in prison. Before they're even convicted. Right. So the majority of people who are arrested getting released, that's a good thing because they have not yet been convicted of a crime. Which, okay, first of all, even if you don't agree with us, which email us and we will send you a plethora of literature but even if you don't agree with us the way chris wallace is doing this is so disingenuous and assumes that it like directly leads to crime yeah absolutely and it's, it's saying really that irresponsible cr cr these criminals are being arrested right that the people being arrested are criminals and they're not it's not the same thing i served on a jury and you're an expert yeah look <laughs> i'm an expert i served on a jury once it was a really long trial yeah it was really interesting but this lady, <laughs> we don't I'm, have I'm just going to say, we don't have, she we, was not a criminal. We said that she was not guilty. Right. And so, yes, she was on trial. She was arrested. But you know what? She was not guilty. That's true. It happens. So Chris Wallace obviously did a good deal, and his team did a good deal of research related to this discussion, invited on some very interesting people, had interesting conversations, particularly the Kansas City mayor did an excellent job throughout, but don't get sloppy with your language and with your assumptions <laughs> that sounds like some real dad advice <laughs> i'm sure i'll hear it in 16 years it's just criticism this is not an attack <laughs> that part too naomi you had something else to talk about today yes so this will be brief it's my something about politics i wow republicans oh, what was it Wow, the state of COVID in this country is a giant spectrum, just so wide. And I, I was a little speechless in the interview, a little as in like, 
mouth gaping wide open in the interview on Face the Nation with Governor Asa Hutchinson. Now, a few things. First, Asa Hutchinson goes on a lot and he's not always like he wasn't always Mr. Pro-Trump. And I think he gave like some real talk hard advice to his colleagues during the pandemic. So in general, Governor Hutchinson is pretty accessible and is not always just kind of like spouting the Kool-Aid, you know. But even Spouting in... Spouting the Kool-Aid? Yeah, like he's like drank it all and then spits it in your face. Okay. All the Trump Kool-Aid. Right. Which but, is orange, by the way. Oh, yeah. Ew. That, that'd be more like Tang. But anyway, I could not believe some of the responses he was giving in his interview with John Dickerson trying to explain why COVID is going back up in Arkansas. It's like we have amnesia. The pandemic is even over and we already have amnesia. Take a listen to this abysmal response in trying to explain the vaccination rate. Thank you for being with us. The University of Arkansas Medical Sciences uh, had to reopen its COVID wing, and the CEO there said, we have seen a 300% increase in the numbers of patients hospitalized. What's going on? Well, those that are being hospitalized are those that have not been vaccinated. And what you see in Arkansas, and that probably replicates uh, some of what you see across the country, is that in March and April, whenever we were struggling with vaccine supplies, uh, that we started getting our vaccines out there. You saw our cases go down dramatically. And when our cases went down, the demand for vaccines was reduced as well. And so what you have is that people started feeling comfortable. Uh, people saw the cases, the hospitalizations down. And so the urgency of getting the vaccine slowed down. We've got to make sure that we do everything we can to get the word out, which we have. We've used incentives that have not been very successful. Uh, we've obviously done marketing uh, for our vaccines. Uh, we're educating, doing everything that we can. And we're up to uh, you know, a 50% of adults uh, already are vaccinated, but we've got to get that higher. We're doing everything we can to encourage that. And I think as if, uh, if, if incentives don't work, reality will. And as you see the hospitalizations go up, the cases go up, I think you'll see the vaccination rate increase as well. So because some people have been vaccinated, infection rates are down. So everyone else just didn't feel like they have to get the vaccination or get, they didn't have to get the vaccine. And it's just, <laughs> I feel like the emoji where their head is like exploding on the top and it's like just like a fire. <laughs> no, you're thinking of my favorite line in the movie yes. Clue, where yes. Mrs. White, I think, just talks about how her ex is mistress. She's like, I, I hate her. It, it flames on my <laughs> yes. face. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. But it, like, we've been in this pandemic for a year and a half. Like, how can people in your state not understand? the risk and i get it it's a republican state and there's been a lot of crazy misinformation going around for the last year and a half often from our former president but like it, who it's, got the vaccine by the way yeah it, it just feels like the context in which this hesitation is founded on is completely ignored and he's just saying like well people aren't scared right now and that's why and that's it Right. We're gonna keep, it, we're gonna keep working on it. Yeah, it's an assumption, and he talks about the marketing they have without mentioning that there are people on national news, on Fox News, 
saying otherwise, talk spouting all the conspiracy theories out there. Yeah, and I just it it drives me crazy like how effortlessly he kind of gives this response that it's just because people aren't scared anymore and it's like it's because like the whole understanding of the virus has been tainted by so many people in his state and like we should be more explicit about that yeah i was really also pretty disappointed in the follow-up by john dickerson because it is just too polite help us think through some of this because is it it just the lack of urgency because reality has been pretty uh, apparent for the last, you know, more than a year and a half. So is there some other portion of this hesitancy that is tougher to crack than just simply the fact that it's not blaring from the headlines every day? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there is uh, vaccine hesitancy. Part of it is uh, we'll just delay it. But the part that you're most concerned about are those that that believe don't believe in the efficacy of it. They believe that the, in the conspiracy theories. Uh, I had uh, emails today from a business person who uh, was discouraging vaccines, and 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 you know part of it is just the nature of uh, of humans that uh, unless they are absolutely convinced, there is that vaccine hesitancy. One of the challenges was uh, the fact that this is an, under FDA emergency use authorization, and so we need to get that research completed so it can be final approval. I think that will help. Secondly, you look back, and I think the uh, he- the uh, pause on the J&J vaccine increased the hesitancy. I think that was an error. I don't think it was necessary, but those factors t- uh, together, I think, increased the hesitancy. Again, just not acknowledging the insane misinformation of 2020. Well, he talked a little bit about conspiracy theories. A little bit. A smidge. It's just, I don't know. If you live in a state where your governor's talking like this, I hope you have a clearer line to your neighbors and you're able to kind of really make the claim about why it's safer for everyone to get vaccinated. That being said, there was an excellent closing question and an excellent answer from Governor Hutchinson that I thought I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. It was a question about infrastructure, and I thought it was a great example of John Dickerson reframing an issue in terms of how it impacts people and a local leader, you know, a state official really understanding the issue of what it means. I've got a quick question on infrastructure. It can seem like an abstract idea to people, but the I-40 bridge that went from Tennessee to Arkansas had to be shut down. Tell us how bad it got and how that's affected the economy in the area. Well, it's been a uh, terrible loss to uh, our economy uh, in terms of the increased cost of transportation logistics. The I-40 bridge is a major artery. It is still shut down. And so uh, that it helps us to get our goods across the Mississippi River to the East Coast. Uh, we have commuters going back and forth. I think the Trucking Association says it costs us $2.4 million a day, just an extra logistics cost. And so uh, we want to get that fixed. And it illustrates the need for the current infrastructure plan. I applaud uh, the senators that came together in a bipartisan way. From a governor's standpoint, uh, that helps us get to these kind of bridge repairs. It helps us to improve our road and bridge infrastructure, but also uh, our electric vehicle uh, modernization and 
uh, having those uh, systems in place. The water systems are important. Our Arkansas River navigation, so I hope they get to the next step and get that passed. I just love the specificity of this question, talking about the I-40 interstate and asking what it would mean if it was operational in his state. The exact kind of question that we should be hearing more of, especially from state governors and mayors about how infrastructure investments would impact their region. Yeah, to make it real. Absolutely. And not just trillions of dollars. Six trillion dollars. All right, Naomi. Well, that ta- that's it for Polylog. This week and every week, we encourage you to make your dialogue count. And I have to take a pause here. I have to say, just quickly, because you were talking about COVID, and it reminded me of just this excellent article I would encourage everyone to drop every, everything and read, and it'll take you a while. It is <laughs> the article in the New York Times by Zainab Tufeki. She is an extraordinary journalist. Stellar researcher. Yes. About the origins of COVID-19. And it's just eye-opening. And it brings to light all the questions about, like, the possibility of it being a lab leak and what that means. And also how frequently lab leaks happen all over the world and how messed up some of the research is it's it's really really in general if you're on twitter you should follow her she's a real gem and a smart voice on lots of issues yeah and And has been like and just a breath of fresh air during this whole pandemic overall she's got a newsletter called insight and yeah but you got to read this article you will learn so much (laughs) you are that is my dialogue challenge. Read it and talk to someone about it because I swear you have been talking a lot about a lot it of to people. me so much. Everyone, yes. I've yes. got more. I've highlighted things I'm t- <laughs> that I'm we haven't t- discussed yes. yet. Oh my gosh! Yeah. All right, that's our dialogue challenge. Yes. <laughs> Repeat the dialogues that Brendan has been. <laughs> Just read the article and then I, you will want to talk to someone about it. It's okay. great journalism. Really, really well done. Really well done. I'm recent. not arguing against that. All right, there you have it. Well, if you have comments about the article, about anything on today's show, <laughs> there will be a link in the show notes. Of course. You can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at sodonaomi underscore. You can tweet at the show at polylogcast, and you can tweet at me at beastidle. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.